Okay, what's coming around now is a summation of what we did last week. This is reflective of one of those situations where Matthew has taken the sequence from Mark and changed it, flipped it. We have in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20, the story of the calling of Simon, Andrew, James, and John Zebedee. And that is recounted in Mark six, uh, for chapter 1, 16 through 20. And then in 21 down through the end of 39, we have the events that immediately follow in Mark, that calling of the disciples, where essentially Peter take and, and, and Andrew, James and John, take Jesus to their synagogue, to their hometown synagogue, and Jesus has a beginning of ministry there. And then Peter takes Jesus home. Well, he's not Peter yet. Takes Jesus home. And they meet his mother-in-law. Which, of course, implies what about Simon Peter? He's married, he's married yes. <laughs> that he's married. Um, and the healing of the mother-in-law. And then the ministry there in the house from the house um, in the healing of many people and then Jesus trying to get away <laughs> and not being very successful. Um, that second segment of story follows immediately from the calling in Mark. Luke inverts the sequence and, you'll, and you can see on, in the right column here Luke 4.31 through the end of chapter 4 of Luke contains the material that is in Mark 1, 21 through, through 39. Placed before the calling of the disciples in Luke 5, 1 through 11. Wow. Isn't that interesting? Luke has transposed the sequence. And as brilliant as Dr. Luke is, he doesn't exactly do a great job of it. There are some hanging threads missing, uh, just kind of hanging there. For instance, when it begins, Jesus goes to Capernaum. He, he is in the synagogue. There's the, 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 the cleansing of the man with the demon. And then look at verse 38 of chapter 4 of Luke. After leaving the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Who's Simon? Who's Simon? Mm -hmm. Out of the blue, no mention of him before <laughs> in the gospel. Suddenly, Simon's house, he enters it. Wow. Why is he entering it? How does he know it's Simon's house? Why is he there? There is no indication anywhere in here that he's met Simon yet. Out of the blue, bang up. We have this encounter and this trip down to his house. Um, his house is not far away from the synagogue, but there's a lots of other residences in the area. So it's not as if it was you know, a very simple thing. He had to walk down several streets to, to get to Simon's house. And notice he, he, he enters Simon's house. And now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever 
And they asked him, they, who the heck is they? Mm -hmm. They asked him about her. Then he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. Immediately she got up and began to serve them. So we have the, the he, and in case you wonder, well, maybe it's a, a different event. Maybe this happened, and then he goes and meets the disciples, and then they go back, and he visits Simon's house again, because that would make logical sense. Well, then he healed his mother-in-law twice, because in Mark, it's the exact same, the exact same story. As soon as they left the Mark chapter 1 verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now these that's the they. That's the they. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and then the fever left her and she began to serve them. That's the same story with a slight different twist. Notice what Luke did. He says that he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. So it's an interesting different nuance on the healing sequence. Here Jesus just reaches out his hand and takes it and lifts her up. In Luke, that's in Mark, in Luke he rebukes the fever and it leaves her. So do you think You've it was an actual slight... re rebuking? Huh? What? Sorry. I just asked you, so do you think there was an actual rebuking? That's how Luke renders it. But how would he know? Luke is drawing from Mark. How would he know? It could be Luke's theology in play here. Luke's understanding. He's, he is a, a, a physician in the ancient world. And in the ancient Greco-Roman world, fevers were indicative of possession. If you were burning up with a fever, you've got some other being in you. So his diagnosis of the situation is to say, fever come out. I mean, that his diagnosis is there's, a, there's something in there, like there had been a demon in the guy at the synagogue, and therefore he uses the rebuke method to get rid of it. That would reflect a characteristic of, of medicine in that era. They also used to bleed people to get rid of the bad spirits hanging around in the blood. That was a pretty, that was a Roman practice by the way. A heavy Roman practice too. If you ever had a fever, one of the things you would do would be to bleed the person thinking that all of those naughty little bugs or demons or creatures or critters or whatever it is that hangs around in blood uh, would, would leave. Didn't we used to use leeches in the old west? We, in the, in the western really? world, not just in the old west, but in the western, western world in Europe and, and then in America, bleeding was a method uh, by which you would treat people who were sick. And of course it usually ended up killing them. It wasn't necessarily smart. Um, <laughs> Uh, rebuking the fever is actually smarter <laughs> in that sense. Um, so you could say that there's an element here that it's his theological interpretation of what happens that he applies on as a layer over Mark's rendering. Or he may be aware from other sources that that event as rendered in Mark is incomplete and that it ought to read render. Now you could make that argument. 
This, these notes say that Luke is more apt to simplify, which I found very interesting. It's the last thing it says there, and Matthew interprets. Matthew is usually interpret, and Luke is more apt, not that he always simplifies. There, you will see when we get to, for instance, the, uh, when you're dealing with Q, especially, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew interprets, Luke simplifies. Blessed are the poor, as opposed to blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke simply says, blessed are the poor, which is simpler. Luke. Uh, and there are lots of examples of that kind of thing. So especially when it's coming from Q, that's the case. Okay. Uh, there are a couple of an, uh, instances here. Uh, the, well, not here, excuse me. When we get to the leper later on tonight, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see a place where Luke fixes grammar. That that Mark has mangled in, in a in in a colloquially spoken way. By the way, maybe, maybe you pointed this out last week. I'm not sure, but I think Luke has a better explanation. Yes, for the behavior of that, Simon. That was one of the reasons why I think Luke has swapped the sequence, and that's what I said last time. I believe that Luke was troubled by. As in Mark, Simon and Andrew, James and John simply just dumping their job and following Jesus. Mm -hmm. Why in the world, speaking as a, as a, as a Gentile Greek person, why in the world would, would these four men, fishermen, just drop their gainful employment and follow this itinerant preacher unless there's been something that has indicated to them that he ought to be followed. And so what Luke has done, now, now for, for someone who's a Jew, that's, that's, they're used to having this type of thing occur. Um, uh, preachers coming around, people who are already attuned to messianic expectations are going to be looking for this kind of thing. Jesus seems to have that charismatic Draw and for them, therefore, that is sufficient. But for a Greco person, someone from the Hellenistic world, that is less likely to be evident. So, what he, I think, has done is he's taken the account of the cleansing of the demoniac there in the synagogue and of the, the healing of, of, of Simon's mother in law and the sequence that follows in Mark. 32 through 34 about the people who were being who were sick or possessed with demons being brought to him and the whole city gathered at the door all these events here uh, all of those events seem to highlight Jesus in an unmistakable way as someone you're going to want to follow well if those events happened prior to the calling of Simon, Andrew, James, and John, then it would make sense then for, for them to follow it'd Jesus. It would be less Holy Spirit driven though. But more... More acting on what you're seeing rather more than... More reflective of a sense. Oh. It's more logical, more, logical, more sense. Uh -huh. It's more, more reflective direct. of a Gentile... Uh, way of approaching things and hence would read the reason why Luke did it 
but would also be the reason why Mark's sequence is more likely to be correct. You understand? Yeah. Because Luke's, Luke's reason for swapping it is governed by a Gentile discomfiture with just <laughs> dumping your stuff and going. However, my own problem with Luke here is the, the, this bit here about Jesus being the fish magnet. Uh, yeah. in, 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 what, in Luke 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 and following, I mean, after having preached, uh, excuse me, he's standing on either side of the seashore, and he sees two boats, so he, he gets in one of the boats belonging to Simon and asks him to put out a little way from the shore, and then he sits there and teaches the crowds from the boat. All right. So that's pretty impressive. And then, after he's finished... Speaking, he says to Simon, verse 4, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Now, it's not necessarily a given that this is happening the very next day in Luke's rendering, but if it is, then they couldn't have been present in Capernaum the night before. If they've been fishing all night long. Master, we have, been, we have worked all night long but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. Uh, when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. Wow. <laughs> A lot of fish. <laughs> but when Simon Peter, interesting, when Simon Peter, long before he's ever given the name Peter, by the way, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This, is, this to me is enough of a highlight that Luke could have kept the prior sequence from Mark and just inserted the story here, which is alluded to elsewhere in Matthew, by the way. And um, it just inserted the story here, and that would have been sufficient for me. Yeah. You know, I'm a Gentile type of guy. I've heard this guy preach sitting in my boat. We go out to sea, or out into the middle of the lake, hadn't caught a thing all night long, let down nets, and whammo. Fish magnet Jesus draws them all into the nets. I gotta get James and John Zebedee over here to help me get all these fish up into our boats, and we're nearly sinking. Man! I wouldn't be saying, go away from me, Master. I'm saying, here, you sit right here. You ain't leaving the boat ever again. <laughs> We're go fishing. Uh, but no, he says, go away from me because he realizes that he's not worthy to be in the presence of a man like this. For he and all who were with him were amazed to catch a fish they had taken. Verse 10. And so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. It must have been the guys in the other boat who came to help. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. This is almost certainly not intended to be a sequential because he, he kind of finishes it at verse 44. So he continued proclaiming a message in the synagogues of Judea. So it's like, and things go on. And then he says, and once, once, you know. Yeah. 
He has, he has swapped the sequence for a literary reason. But I think he is well aware of what he's doing. And if you accept the Markan chronological order as being paramount, then his swapping the story sequence shouldn't affect you, shouldn't really bother you that much. And in their world, it didn't bother you. It didn't bother him. He was willing to do it. He was willing to take a gospel, a written document about the life of Jesus that he is using as his guide, as one of his sources, and adjust the sequence. But, but this story about the fish and all that stuff, that's not in any of the source, other sources. That it's, have, it? it's, it's alluded to elsewhere in Matthew, but I don't want to touch on it yet because it actually applies to a different story. And then Jesus sitting in the boat and preaching actually occurs elsewhere as well. Actually occurs elsewhere as well. Why don't you have Matthew here as well to see where he falls in line with, with this? I had planned to do that, but I didn't have enough room on one page. Uh, Matthew's account is very short and parallels Mark a whole lot better than it parallels Luke. Um, go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As he, Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, si brother Simon, who was called Peter, long before he's ever been given that nickname, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. It's a very close... Almost identical, with a few minor little things uh, left out. For instance, in verse 20, Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The with the hired men is in Peter, is in, is in Mark, but it's not in Matthew. And last time when we talked about this, I speculated that it might not be in Matthew because Matthew was written primarily to... The Jewish Christians and Jews who were refugees living outside of their homeland in Damascus and Antioch area who were probably rather poor as a result of being disrupted and, and moved by the Roman occupations, they're refugees, and so they may not have been very comfortable with the concept that James and John Zebedee, pretty big leaders in the early church, were actually sons of someone who was wealthy enough to have hired hands helping out in the family business. So that little phrase got just sort of conveniently dropped to smooth the way over a little bit by, by Matthew. That's speculative, but it, it, could, it fits the, the dynamics of the situation of the communities in, within which Matthew lived and, and in, within which this gospel uh, was written. But yeah, Matthew follows Mark almost word for word, very close. Luke is the one here who for, I am convinced, cultural reasons is struggling with 
Why in the world are these disciples following Jesus? Well, if you knew about who he, this Jesus is, that he is not just a fantastic preacher, but a miracle worker and a deliverer of demons and whatnot, you're going to be more likely to follow. And so he tells that he puts the that part of the story up front as a more impressive beginning than, hey, you guys over there fishing, follow me. You guys over there fishing, follow me. And okay, let's go follow. But as Lisa says, that's more that's more powerful, spiritual, miraculous, whatever, in the Mark version. Than it the is Mark version really smacks of Jewish cultural expectations, the Jewish setting. Yeah. It's actually stronger than the Jewish setting, as Matthew is. The concept that these people are attuned to looking for possible messiahs, uh, uh, great preachers, great prophets. They're, it's in their history. It's in their blood, so to speak. Uh, people who speak for Yahweh. It's, it's, it's there in their blood, in their experience. It's what they're looking for. Even people who are simple fishermen would have been, would have been taught uh, the Hebrew Bible and the Jewish expectation for the Messiah. It was, part of their, it was part of their cultural ethos. And for them, if someone comes along who has some kind of charisma about whom they may have heard a little something uh, you know, by word of mouth, Prior to showing up, when he shows up and he calls you, you come, you go, you drop your stuff and go. But that's a story that's been told, of, I don't know, of the rest of people, but being United Methodist, or a Methodist, excuse me, then United Methodist, since birth, that's a story I've heard. Drop your stuff and come, and that's fascinating because that's more Jewish, as you're saying, Messianic. It, it reflects the Jewish cultural the ethos, which reflects. Mark's priority in terms of, it, of sequence of which came first. And you can see how Luke adjusted the sequence for cultural reasons. I find it fascinating that we're steeped in the Jewish tradition and telling of the story rather than the, the Luke we side. Would of it. Be, we actually are more steeped in that Jewishness. Yes, we are. Uh, because we know the story. We know who this Jesus is. Of course, so did the readers of Mark and Matthew. Uh, if Luke is written to God-fearing Gentiles who aren't entirely yet on the side within the church and who are not steeped in Jewishness, which is a possibility, then that also makes sense that Luke would need to adjust the sequence or feel like he needed to adjust the sequence. Thoughts? Well, last week we had some folks who aren't here, but I think they were a little bit taken aback when Greg explained the fungibility of the, <laughs> of the stories and how they could, could be rearranged by the authors. For, uh, it didn't bother them. They didn't think they were doing anything uh, untoward, you know, wow. uh, any damage to the Source material, I guess, you know, by, by using it out of sequence. Luke, Luke felt free. Did you use fungibility? Yeah, it means you, it's, it can be changed. Malleable. It's malleable. It can be adjusted. Without lying about it. And, it's a truth. And it's a universal truth. While highly, obviously, otherwise Luke wouldn't be using it, highly respected and regarded, still he felt free to take and adjust the sequence, and he'll do it elsewhere. Take and adjust the sequence 
to fit an, object, an objective that, that he had, but which isn't necessarily either relevant today, present today, obvious today, and wasn't present for Matthew, and it's not present in Mark. What did they think about the inspiration? Maybe he was inspired to do such. Well, and also I, th I think he probably didn't think that Mark was necessarily recounting the gospel either in the sense of the way he did it. Well, that was probably... Mark, I, think it's obvious that, material. I think it's obvious that Luke has great respect for Mark and may very well know that Mark's source is an, is, is an apostle, but at the same time... He has no trouble with making adjustment to it. It's, it's clear in what he does. Now, you can talk about the Holy Spirit being present in an inspiration process whereby what they're writing and how they're writing this serves an inspired purpose. I have no problem with that. Um, I have no problem with that at all. God will does indeed move through uh, many uh, unexpected means and ways. And perhaps Luke wrote it and changed the sequence the way he did for a time and a place and a group of people who needed to read it and hear it this particular way so they could comprehend it better, but which may not necessarily be the case for us. And it can still be inspired. Do you, do you think they had, say, let's say Luke had Mark intact start to finish or could it have been in pieces? You know? um, enough enough study has been done to show that Mark that, that Luke and Matthew's copy of Mark is substantially identical. It's not the same exact copy but the copies they have are very close. And considering when they're writing, not very many years separate what they're their writing and the writing of Mark. So there hasn't been a whole lot of time for multiple copies to generate a, degree, a high degree of variance. Um, at least that's in, and and it and I think you can detect when you read this stuff in Luke. Luke is aware of what he's doing. He's aware he's changing the sequence. He's obviously changing the sequence. If you take a look at this, he has to change who it is that's looking for Jesus in his account of the story. It says, at daybreak he departed and went into the desert, deserted place. This is Luke 4.42 and following. And the crowds were looking for him. In Mark, it says, and Simon and his companions hunted for him. He has to manipulate the story to fit this, the, this new sequence. He's aware of what he's doing. But in so doing, this change, there's, if, it, it, it would have worked a little better, Luke. Here, I'm going to be the editor here. It would have worked a little better in verses 38 and 39 if he had taken out Simon's, the reference to Simon's mother-in-law, and just said a, lay, a woman in a house nearby that synagogue. That would have made the story flow a little better than you go, well, wait a minute now. Well, I don't think that's the case. He's just identifying who the woman is. I know. And I mean, it's Simon, after, that certainly establishes how Simon knows enough to call him master. Exactly. True. Oh, my God. He did this for my mother-in-law. Yeah. Darn it. I wish she was... No. Yeah, the the mother-in-law <laughs> joke. The mother-in-law joke, right. No, I, uh, I, I think that 
we have to also realize that this is not some unknown narrative either. These people are known to the people who are reading this. They know who this Simon Peter is. That's why it says Simon, who is called Peter. I mean, that's what we have. He was. Way before he was. Right here in Matthew yeah. uh, 4, it says, As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter. But he wasn't. But he wasn't yet. <laughs> Not but he time. is by the people who are reading this story. And by the time he was writing it, it makes perfect sense. By the time, he he's, by the time he's writing, by writing the time people are people reading this, as Peter, so might, the people written, in the community to which who is Matthew now is known writing, as Peter, rather than who is called that's Peter. That's kind of how it's rendered. But isn't, that, isn't he doing that in shorthand? In, in a yeah. sense, he is doing that. you got to remember, they, it may very well be the case that amongst the people in the, in the Matthew community, they may know him more as Peter, as Cephas. Petros. Cephas is the Aramaic. Petros is the Greek. They may know him more as Peter by Jesus' nickname for him. Well, couldn't you flip it around and say, well, why, was he, why did he even use Simon? Why don't you say Peter? I mean, if you're writing it, obviously, in many places, In many sure places, he does use just Petros. So what would be the reason that he would put Simon in here? Reflecting the pre-nicknaming period. And reflecting the Mark in account. While Mark references the naming of Peter, here it isn't. Look at that. It says, And Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and his brother Andrew. Which verse was that? Mark chapter, six, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Yeah, right at the beginning. At the very beginning. He doesn't give the naming of Peter there, who is known as Peter. <laughs> who, by the way, is the guy that you y'all knew as Peter before he was executed in Rome in 64. No, he doesn't. He, he, Mark doesn't bring that in at this point. Interesting. Uh, reflects the fact that quite possibly, while he may have been known as Cephas amongst all of the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem because Jesus nicknamed him so, and even Paul calls him that, as well as the Greek Petros, he may not have used the nickname for himself very much. Instead, you know, he calls himself Simon, his name. And Mark, if Mark is writing this down, having heard it again and again and again and again from, you know, Kepha, he's maybe more likely to write down what Jesus actually said, which is at this point would not have been Simon, but Kepha's. <laughs> I mean, Luke, no, not, 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 actually, I got to reverse it. Yeah. Yeah. Not Cephas, but Simon. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, that does make given sense. given Especially if he's also around Peter's family members or relatives. Or Wife, family. kids, They would always grandkids. be referring to him as Simon, not Peter. Or daddy or whatever. It looks like Mark could have, you know, 135 and 36 and 37 at the bottom of the page. Mm-hmm. It looks like he could, unless I'm reading this really out of order. He could have, by that time, yeah, he'd already called him, right? Yeah. So, yes. so he could have called him Peter down there and it would have made more he sense. He doesn't do it yet. He keeps calling him Simon. He doesn't do it for a while. Yeah, that doesn't he make may, sense. He, doesn't, he, he does do it, but he hasn't done it yet. Yeah. What's I, he holding back for? <laughs> I, I want a conversion. I want people I'm to see not how there. powerful and he yet is. Here, yeah. he does, Luke doesn't. Ha- now, Luke will at times Simon. not say Peter. He'll say yeah. just Simon. 
in many places. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon. But in verse 8, but when Simon <laughs> Peter saw it. That's because he forgot to And that's that. the other thing. It <laughs> seems as though they tended to say Shimon Kephas as one name for him. They, would, they often would reference him with both his given name and the name Jesus gave him, Shimon Kephas. And they would do that maybe out of respect for him. And that got echoed on down to Luke's day. But that really is weird in that five because I just marked Simon one, two, three, <laughs> four, five times and Simon Peter once. Mm-hmm. 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 Exactly. Jeez, amazing. Exactly. And Matthew also had the Simon Peter right. Yes. Uh, in, in Matthew, Simon, who was called Peter, and elsewhere in many cases, Simon Peter, sometimes just Simon, sometimes just Peter. A, and I don't think, I think we'd be pushing it too far to conclude a specific reason why it may just have been usage. It may well be that that Mark has an aversion to referencing Simon as Peter as frequently as the others do because he's closer to the fellow and the fellow's family. And many of these stories that he's telling, he's telling having heard them again and again and again from the guy who doesn't reference himself as that as often. It's possible. Not, necess- you know, not necessary, but it's, a, it's possible that's kind of what's guiding this. But they also may just be literary conventions. Sometimes you name him Simon, sometimes Simon Peter, sometimes Peter. I mean, why does Paul call him Cephas in one place and Petros everywhere else? Ah, good question. He calls him Cephas once in Galatians. The rest of the time he calls him Peter. Petros. I hope there weren't two. You know? I hope he didn't have another brother. He doesn't call him Simon. If he had another brother, that would have been nasty. All right. The main reason that you said that Luke may have put that, uh, switched it around, mm-hmm. was to uh, give more uh, validity to why they may have just dropped their nets and followed For him. a Gentile reader. Right. What about all that happened prior to Luke 4? There was seems to be a lot of evidence that Jesus is mm-hmm. doing miraculous things. And right. So he has a back he, history in, in Nazareth which we also covered last time. He had a back history in Nazareth, but which you don't read about, which yet we do get later in the account, by the way, in, in, in Mark and Matthew, but which isn't yet presented, it would, but which is presented up front in Luke. He gets rejected by the, by the Nazarenes uh, right up front. I'm serious. Whereas uh, in Luke, Whereas in the others, that, that rejection occurs a little later. Yes, but there's also miraculous things that Luke mentions prior to this happening. But not to these well, people, not to, to this family. Oh. Not to this specific family. Not you mean to not, to the, not to the Simon's family? Right. This is the first time we see Simon. Simon's yeah, all family. That stuff didn't, we and don't then we know what Simon. happened to them. This is what's happening to me, Bubba. This is my family. This is my mother. For the, Stepmother. For the, for the, what I'm saying is not for the reader to find Jesus worthy of following. It's for the reader right. to understand why Simon and Andrew, James, and John found Peter worthy of following. 
if you're and and for a Gentile reader, that would probably be something of an issue. Well, that, that's my speculation. I can't figure out any other reason. And every commentator I've read has vacillated on it, and they tend to always say, "Well, it's probably because Luke's audience really needed to hear that story first, so they could understand why Peter, Andrew, James, and John ended up following him in the, eventually." Prior to the, this study that we've been doing, I had always been taught that Luke was the one that you should trust in terms of the chronology, in terms of the <laughs> order of events. Now, in this particular case, I can see the strong right. argument to say that that's not the case. But frequently that is true. Isn't that because of how yeah, it started, Luke? Luke's chronology seems to be superior to Mark's at times. Other times, and this is an example of one of them, it's, it's obvious what he's done and why he's done it. And so long as that's kept in mind, it's better, it, it's better to retain the mark and sequence. Stan, this, uh, these notes say, and I quote, the order of events as related in Matthew and Luke agree 99, this must be the 1%, 99% of the time with Mark. That's correct. 99%, so you're... you're Actually, them. that's combining Matthew and Luke together. In, in Luke, oh, okay. it's less frequent. But uh -huh. it is it, it, it is a really high percentage. Yeah, because that time Matthew agreed with I say what they're saying. And, and that is also true through from the Q material. They tend to heavily more so in Matthew than in Luke. Luke seems to be willing to blend things up, but they tend to maintain the sequence more. And Luke states in verse three of the first chapter that he wants to set out to write it. In order. order. That's what he said. An orderly account. In order. Which means he may very well have some disagreement with certain elements of sequence as seen in Mark. If Mark and we know Mark's one of his sources. So, so that lends further support to why he's doing this. He's doing it because he honestly believes, at least in some places, that that the Markan account is out of sequence. Interestingly enough, Papias, when he talks about the Gospel of Mark, says right out front, well, Mark got the sequence out of order in places. Jeez, now, there's a reason for that. It's because Papias prefers John's chronology. But that's a totally <laughs> other discussion. Because he, he was a student of John. So of course he prefers John's chronology. But he says, therefore, that when, when Mark wrote down the sayings, uh, the teachings of Peter about the life of Jesus, when Mark wrote it down, he wrote it down, but not in chronological order. Well, <laughs> actually, it's probably that he got the chronological order better yeah. than John did in places. John is heavily governed by theological argument and, and structure, whereas Mark has a thematic structure but does follow the basic understood chronology of in, the, in the large overarching framework. He, he doesn't put the cleansing of the temple at the beginning like John does for a theological reason. Uh, uh, Mark puts it where it belongs towards the end of Jesus' ministry. And then Matthew and Luke maintain that sequence. So that would be consistent with Luke saying, you know, I'm going to put it in order. So, because when you read that, it's hard to just kind of gloss over that and say, well, if he intended to put it in order, if we're understanding order to be chronological sequence, mm -hmm. why would he then purposely change 
the order, when at the very beginning he said he was setting out to put it in writing. Unless part of that order also means order of understandability. Yeah. Greek. He's Greek. Order of, of meaning. Not, not, it, it, it includes some chrono chronological repair work, but it's not exclusive, not exclusive to that. Yeah. And well, can I ask a question for you? Of course. The verse, the, the, if you go back behind the English language and you look at that verse, or that word, was that word used to mean many different things or was specific? I need to see what word it is. Verse 3, you said? The only order is the proper translation. I can't really think of any utilization of it other than to say order, uh, sequence. Chronological. Uh, I have a couple of alternate English translations. What are the alternates? Well, the King James is to write unto thee in order. The RSV says to write an orderly account for you. And that okay, that's the difference wow. in the in the. In the English translation and how they render the word grammatically. Right, on. and here's NASB says to write it out for you in consecutive order. Wow. Well, that's really not what's here. And then there's, I'm not sure what this abbreviation means, but it's NEB. And it's in, this one says to write a connected narrative for you. And then the last one is a factual account in a connected way. That would, that would explain straightening out the geography. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these other guys didn't know anything about the terrain. Why he decided to put it in order that would make sense. Or at least not as much about the terrain. The TLB says to recheck oh, yeah. all these accounts from first to last and after thorough investigation to pass this summary on to you to reassure you <laughs> the truth okay. of all you were taught. <laughs> oh, that pretty well nails it. <laughs> <laughs> like jello. No <laughs> Uh, it, everywhere I can think of that it's used, it means order. So I would, I mean, I'd have to go take a look at a lexicon to see other utilizations, both inside and outside the New Testament. But just off the top of my head, I can't think of anything. Order like as in sequence, not order as in organized, ma making sense, connected. Because that, that seems to be the two different ways of looking at it. In order meaning well I thought out versus order as in sequence. I can't think of a use in the New Testament which which would lend itself that way, but that doesn't mean that it can't contain that meaning. I, as I said, I need to go take a look at a lexicon to see both in outside the New Testament, uh, in, in, in Greek literature in large, plus in, in the Septuagint Greek, if that word has that applicable meaning. It may have that applicable meaning. The NIV. Read, read, read your, read your, read it again, please. Read, read verse three. Well, we haven't heard the NIV. Read, yet. read the That's NIV. Well, it's, you'll love it. Meaningful arrangement that is generally chronological. Oh, okay. now, see, <laughs> Meaningful now that, arrangement that, that is general. That's what you all been saying, basically. Well, that seems to be what yeah. he did. If you meaningful mean, arrangement right. that is generally, generally except when I need to change it for <laughs> exactly. a specific to reason my, that makes to sense my audience. to me. That makes sense. Okay, read it again from the uh, King James, please. King Just James. that phrase or the whole the verse whole three. Okay, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order. I'm going to have to look it up. I'm, I'm, I'm running my brain through all the usages of it that I know of, and it's nowhere used in any, any way other than to say uh, orderly or, or mm -hmm. 
structured, uh, sequential type idea. Like but that's, that's only in the New Testament. And I'd have to look outside the New Testament to see, of, and that's all contextually determined, by the way. I'd have to look outside the New Testament to see if the word can be used other, in other ways. It may well be possible. I'm not certain on that. Well, we talked about, what, two weeks before, how he rearranged the order of Jesus' temptation. Mm -hmm. well, you know, went from the desert to the mountain to the town, and which was more orderly. And, yeah. and Luke had a theological reason the for theological. changing the sequence from Matthew, whereas the Matthian sequence seems to make more sense mm -hmm. in terms of rising degrees of mm -hmm. critical mass. I.e., worship me is the worst possible thing, whereas it's also the obviously bad thing. Whereas the Lucan order has a has a, has a more theological pointed sense to it, uh, and you can see why Luke's theology determined that the sequence would be changed. And, and that kind of follows what this is doing too. It, when when he changes the sequence of Mark, he either has a theological reason for doing so, or he's fixing something that Mark has mangled. <laughs> which, would an end, which would give you an end result of really not being in an order, chronologically mm -hmm. per se, because but it's a mixture. Mm -hmm. Theologically, or he's driving number one, and as long as the chronology follows along, he makes sure that that's there. But if the theological part doesn't make sense, he's, that overrides the sequence. Which points up the fact that is often stated and restated and can't be stated too often, that these aren't straight histories. These are theological interpretations of historical events and people and, and proclamations. But they are not straightforward histories as such. And to try to take them as such can cause problems and people to say, well, then what do you believe? And, and, and you're missing the point uh, behind the original writing when you do that. Um, the why Luke changed the sequence. Why Luke changed the sequence in the temptations. Why Luke changed the sequence and moved the, the rejection from Nazareth way earlier than you find it elsewhere. Why Luke changed the sequence here. Uh, those are all theological, in those cases, are all theological reasons. And he felt free to do it. It's not as if he felt locked in to either the marking or the saying source sequence. At times he changed it for various reasons. Uh, I do want to hit on the leper tonight. Poor leper. You know, it makes sense. One real quick note that Douglas Scott used to say about uh, improving the validity of the writings of these people. He, he has internal evidence that they were telling the truth. And mm -hmm. that's kind of a good example that if they were lying and they were writing these things to collaborate, they would want to have they all be saying the same thing yeah. at the same time. So it just goes to show they, they weren't, it wasn't a made up lie that they were collaborating with. It truly exactly. was something. Yeah, that they believed in. Right, exactly. And and I would say that Mark is not Mark Mark is doing the best he can to recount account the recount the teachings of Peter about the life of Jesus and put them both into as much a chronological order as possible, but more importantly into a 
logical thematic structure which can be discerned and which we'll look at later. Um, and here we've, we've got Luke now taking it as his source and he has his own theological layer and his own thematic reason. He's always, he, he, he's frequently going from, you know, back to Jerusalem and, and further in the Acts of the Apostles, each of the missionary journeys starts and goes a little further out but comes back to Jerusalem. That tends to be his pattern uh, and, and that's a thematic structure as well. Matthew has his own way of, of doing that. And all of those thematic, theological, literary structures are not necessarily chronological in nature. There is an overarching chronology that is consistent with what you would expect to happen, but it's not necessarily a hard and fast thing to say, well, then this happened and that had to happen. If you've got that in your mind as to what these Gospels contain and why they're written the way they are, then you can forget it because we're already out of that. We've already got a problem. <laughs> We've got a serious problem. Okay, we're going to look here, and this will give us an example of where uh, stories get completely uh, thrown around sometimes in the other, other accounts. Take a look at Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 45. A leper came to him, and this immediately follows this whole sequence here, in which he's healed folk, cast out demons, He's tried to get away. They've searched him out. And he says in verse 39, And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Immediately it then says, A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling he said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus would no, could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country and people came to him. This is the Mark and account of the leper, and it's found in chapter 1, beginning at verse 40 and going to the end of the chapter. And it ends the chapter as it's currently divided up in the Gospels. Immediately parallel to it, immediately following, actually, um, in the Luke sequence, verse 11, uh, chapter 5, verse 11, where he's called the disciples and they follow him once, it says... So you would insert into between verses 11 and 12 the, the material that precedes in 431 through 44 to get the chronological sequence back. Then you've reestablished the sequence from Peter, from Mark. But let's just, just keep going with Luke's sequence in verse 12. Once, 
When he was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, and you may have already noticed the cleaning up of grammar. Mm -hmm. When he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Then Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest, and as Moses, and as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them. But now, more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases, but he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. Now, I'm not going to look at Matthew for a moment. Let's just look at Luke here. It's extremely parallel. It's it's incredibly close. It doesn't take any more lines in my printout copy here except for one word, pray. He has repaired two badly garbled grammatical problems from the Greek, which are not necessarily evident in English, but they are a little bit. Look at verse 40. A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him. Now, who in the heck are all these pronouns referencing? Now, you can, you can, you can diagram it and figure it out, but it's not easy, and in the Greek, it's just as bad. But in Luke, he's fixed it. Once, when he, and that's Jesus, was in one of the cities, there was a man covered with leprosy. When he, that man, saw Jesus, he bowed his head, his face to the ground, and begged him. So he's fixed the grammar that Mark has, has garbled. Mark has garbled it probably because he's remembering how this sounded when it was being spoken. And when we speak, we're not always as precise. And it's the context that determines knowledge as to what these pronouns mean. This has been a lot, you know, plopped out of context wherever it was preached and placed here in the storyline. Well, it's fine where it is, but Luke has fixed that grammatical problem that exists in Mark. You see another grammatical repair down here in the account where it says, Show yourselves to the priest. And as Moses commanded, make an offering for your cleansing for a testimony to them, which repairs the Markan account where it says, Go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. That's Yoda again. The sequence. To the priest offer you will. <laughs> Yoda. There you go. To the priest offer you will. I mean, the Markan account is garbled. It's not as clear, especially in the... The English is fixed a little bit. It's not... In the Greek, it's, it's, it's hard. It, it, it's, it, it causes you to stumble. Luke, he's cleaned it up. But he's still can't clean up the, the them. The them. <laughs> that is a little bit of the problem. Uh, there's different rendering there in some translations. Look at the King James. Who has that? 
I think that's you, Stan. Yeah, sorry, that would be one of your four there. That's uh, Luke 5, verse 14, towards the end of the verse. I'll just read it from the beginning. And he charged him to tell no man, but go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're reading that from Luke? Yes. <laughs> okay, that's a textual issue. They've, they've, they've re-scrambled it. They rescrambled it in the sequence. How's the NIV read there? In red, Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yeah, okay, they maintained the, the, the corrected sequence. Mine says, offer the sacrifice Moses' law requires for lepers who are healed. This yeah. will prove to everyone that you are well. Jeez, me. Is that like yours? No, I have to Well, that is correct. Uh, <laughs> you leper, you. <laughs> that is yeah, correct. So that, apparently there was a special. There was an offering. offering there is an offering that you make in Thanksgiving. It's a Thanksgiving offering. For a testimony to them is the question mm -hmm. that Pete was raising, yeah. and this Who's question them? that is difficult to, to, to gather. What's you, the, you need more priests. Yeah. Yeah, you need an S on that. Yeah, as a testimony to those, to those yeah, priests. Those priests. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they just left an S off a priest. Show yourself to the priest with yeah, an S, and you got it. Too. You got it. Yeah, that's it. You know, she didn't do that in Ben Hur though. Those two people. No, she didn't. No, remember right that? in Ben Hur, they didn't do it. No. Yeah, but if if you really only have to show yourself to one priest, you don't have to gather to many priests under the law. You just have to get one. <laughs> But why? Then he could have said to him or her. That's right. But by doing that, <laughs> by doing that, <laughs> by, you have by an doing that, you know? it then becomes truly a testimony job, to all people. of them. You're correct, and it can also be understood that the testimony, instead of going around blabbing this, go do Just this, do and in a, as a Thanksgiving offering, you are you are giving right. the true proclamation and thanksgiving to God from whence this healing came. And wasn't he also requiring him to do that because that would have been uh, required by the law to do that? It, so yes. he came to fulfill the law, not, this not is to destroy it. One so of the ways in which he was fulfilling, helping this leper, leper to fulfill the law. Notice, is there a difference? Well, let's go back at the beginning. I don't want to do that yet. Go up to the top. Leper comes in. Notice what Luke adds. Uh, you know, he's covered, here he says, he's covered with leprosy. Mark just says, a leper. And then, when he saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground and begged him. Whereas it, here it says, and kneeling, in Mark it says, and kneeling, he said to him. Hmm. So Luke has, in repairing the grammatical problem here at the, in verse 40, he's also added, uh, he, he's, he's, He's made it a richer sentence. A couple of sentences, actually. And it actually reads and flows better. And he's added little details, too. With his face to the ground. Hmm. But notice, in both, he says, 
If you choose, you can make me clean. Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. Yeah, he's reaffirming there when he says Lord, though. Just in case you forgot who Jesus was. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, that's pounding yeah. it in. Yeah. Look at verse 13 and verse 41. I'm going to read, I'm going to read verse 41. I want you to keep your eyes fixed on verse 13 in Luke. I'm going to read 41 from Mark. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do choose be made clean. Yeah. And of course, 40, verse 42 continues, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus. Now notice... I wonder why you left that out. Moved well, the, the, thank you. Well, he added it. It's the pity part is in verse 41 in Mark. It's lacking in Luke. So the statement of pity is not found in Luke. Next, take a look at just at the next line. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He comes up and says, if you, the leper says, if you choose, you can make me clean. And, and that's, that's a moment. And Jesus says what? I do choose. After he touched him. He reaches out and touches him and said, I do choose. Be made clean. And notice, in both of these, in Mark and in Luke, the wording is identical. And in Greek it's identical. Luke isn't monkeying around with <laughs> Jesus' words here. He's maintaining it exact. He's willing to mess around with the narration a little bit, but he's not willing to mess around at this point with these particular words. It's interesting. He may not have felt need to. It, it may have rung too powerful for him to. Well, he, do, he does mess around with it right after. He says, be made. Yes. He says, Jesus is saying, be made clean. And the other one is uh, just the past tense, you know, past tense. Passive, he was made clean. I do choose be made clean. That's I Jesus. do choose be made clean. Oh, you're like reading Greek. No, I'm reading the English. Okay, in Mark it says he was made clean, doesn't it? I do choose be okay. made clean. In verse 41 at the end of okay, the verse, I do choose be made clean. Wow. It's like it's that little dialogue was very deeply understood and, and widely it, held. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful little dialogue. He sure had a lot of faith at that. Who, who, the leper? Well, absolutely. And Jesus. Yeah, I mean, he, because he yeah. said, if you choose. So he recognized he, he knew could that if he wanted to. And up until this point in time, I mean, the woman with the hemorrhage, she goes and she touches his garment, him, believing that that is sufficient. And, of course, it says the power goes, and we'll read this later, the power goes out from Jesus and she's, she's made clean, she's made whole. Here, this fella is believing that he needs to be touched by Jesus. You need. It, what did it, he say? He needs no, to be touched. No, but notice this is if you choose. Jesus makes the choice to heal, and to heal you touch. At this point, the guy with the greater though, the same example. That's later, with greater sophistication. 
-huh. in the storyline where they've discovered that Jesus doesn't have to just heal, which by touching, there's multiple methods for healing, including speaking, and it is so. Well, lepers certainly wouldn't expect someone to touch him. Anyway. Thank That's you. Exactly That's clear. the point I'm really pushing for. That's Jesus' faith. That's why he says, if you choose. And that's why Jesus' faith is so evident here as well. He's a rabbi. He's a holy man. He's If he touches someone who is unclean, he in Jewish rules, he is spiritually, ritually unclean. For him to do this, for, for the leper, let me get the pronouns right. For the leper to do this is, first of all, wrong in their rules. And secondly... It took a lot of faith on his part to come and do it. And thirdly, it took a great degree of faith for Jesus to say, I do so choose wow. be made clean. And actually touching and healing. Could Jesus have healed him without touching him? Absolutely. But, but how would that reflect the reality of the healing? Hmm. By touching him, he, he says, you are now touchable. You are now touchable, even by someone like me, who is, uh, who should be made unclean by your touching me. Instead, I make you clean by me touching you. Which is an interesting reversal of the Hebraic understanding, which sees, which sees impurity as being transmittable by touch, ritual impurity being transmittable by touch, but, but. Ritual purity not being transmittable by touch. He's reversed it, reaching out and touching. He it. changed that law, didn't he? He uh, he reinterpreted it. Lord did he. He reversed it. Mm -hmm. And it's not some law of Moses so much, although it's contained in the Mosaic Covenant about what you're not supposed to do when someone is unclean with issues of blood and stuff. I mean, right there you could say he just violated the law. Mm -hmm. Could theoretically, but no, he's he has changed the understanding. He is not susceptible to uncleanliness, ritually speaking. He is so clean that his touching another conveys cleanness to them, even though they are unclean. And hence the healing. And the, then the importance of touching at this point. So the, so the leper says, if if you decide to change the rules, you can. You can That's do exactly it. right. And yes, says, exactly right. If you choose, if you choose, you can make me clean. And it's leprosy we're talking about. And leprosy, you don't touch them. You shun them. You get rid of them. They, they, they're outside the city. How did they heal them? I think it was called colony. Yeah. They sent them to the colony. They let them die. <laughs> they sent them away from them. Well, I'm sure there were there were probably some people who were gifted by God to heal. I don't know if they're... I don't have any accounts of that. All I know is that up until this point in time in the general culture, leprosy was one of the very few things that was so incredibly both physically and spiritually unclean that you had nothing to do with them. 
leper colonies, in, in essence. Yeah, because they were doing those into the 1800s, right? The Until they cured leprosy in, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century. Yeah. They cured leprosy. And they thought you could give it. Well, it, well you, it is a highly contagious disease. Right. It's not quite as contagious as they thought, right. but it is contagious. You can catch it through intimate and physical contact. Um, however, it is not as transmittable as something as HIV, which is interesting. Yeah. It's a little harder to transmit it than just that. Just coming up to someone and, and getting their blood fluid on you or even in you won't necessarily give you leprosy. That's fascinating. Whereas being injected with HIV-tainted blood will give you HIV. So it's not as susceptible. It's not as you know communicative. Okay. Um, let's keep going. Now, coming on down in the storyline in Peter, you'll notice. Mark, yeah. in, in, Mark. I keep on doing that. I wonder why. Yeah. Saying to him in Mark. mouthpiece. Coming, coming on down in Mark. Saying to him. After so let's go to verse forty-three. After sternly warning him. He sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now notice at the very beginning, say nothing to no one. That got fixed in Luke. Because in, in Greek, it's a, it's a very it's very bad slang. So <laughs> Luke fixed that one right there. It's also kind of weird in English. Mark Keep, says anyone. Yeah. What does yours say? Yeah. Say, your Mark says it. Say nothing to anyone. Say nothing to anyone. In Mark. That? In Mark, uh-huh. Luke fixes that. It's not there at all. To tell no one, yeah. He says, go. And he says, uh, the, the statement, say... Uh, go um, see that you say nothing to anyone is not in Luke. It simply says, and he ordered him to tell no one. Go, he said, and show yourself to the priest. So Luke has fixed it by taking the whole sentence, yeah. the whole phrase that's, out. That's like an English teacher wrote that sentence. Exactly. Luke more educated fixes. Yes. Luke fixes grammar. He probably did it without even thinking. He just it just was completely natural to him. Well, he's reading his source and he's fixing it. Scribe's not going to put anything. It's not like he's saying. He, he, there are a few places where he doesn't fix it. For whatever reason, maybe it's too powerful. He doesn't want to monkey with it at a certain point. But here he has no trouble, even though it's stuffed straight from Jesus's mouth, according to Mark. He drops the whole sentence. Now, the intent is contained in the narration where it says, and he ordered him to tell no one. Of course, that is also found essentially in the narration in Peter. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once. But then the actual warning is contained in verse 44. See that you say nothing to anyone. All right. Now, let's skip down past what he's supposed to do with the priest of verse 45 in, in Mark. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly but stayed out in the country and people came to him from every quarter. 
Okay, looking at Luke. But now, more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad, and thus and such. Yeah. Notice, in Mark, it's the ex-leper who goes out and blabs. In Luke, he doesn't say the ex-leper goes out and blabs. He's removed the onus from the ex-leper. It's now, it could have been people who saw it happen. It just, it just happened. But now more than ever, the word about Jesus spread abroad. He's kind of given the ex-leper some cover here. Mm -hmm. Many crowds would gather to hear him and to be cured of their diseases. <laughs> I was just talking because maybe Peter, when telling the story to Mark, you know, wanted to make sure, since he wasn't the only one who messed up. See here, even the leper, <laughs> he did it too. Make sure you put that in there. <laughs> Repeatedly? That may very well be the case. He, he, Mark will point up where disciples screw up, including himself, but, and he's really hard on himself, but the others too. Whereas Luke, he's, 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 he still says, yeah, word got out, but he doesn't point the finger at the leper, ex-leper. All right. Mark and Luke here are extremely parallel, even, even with those minor little differences, and some of them not so minor. Can I ask you a question about verse 16 in Luke, though? Because that seems to be like... But he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. It seems kind of contradictory to what yeah. Mark was saying earlier when he said over here in um, at verse 38 of chapter 1, he said, let, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message therefore also, for this is what I came out to do. Well, if he came out to proclaim the message, it seems contradictory that he's in a position where everybody's coming out and words no. getting known and he would now withdraw. It seems but contradictory. It, but it is in direct parallel to Mark 135. In the morning while he was while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place and there he prayed. Jesus is continually trying to get away to pray and he can't stay away long enough to pray enough because they're always coming out to find him. Here it's Simon and the others. Uh, in Luke uh, it's uh, at daybreak he departed and went to the deserted place. Doesn't say what for. And the crowds were looking for him and when they reached him they wanted to prevent him from leaving them. It's like he was trying to sneak away. <laughs> Luke. This, this desire to go away and pray is continual. And it's like Jesus never could really get enough of that. And he was constantly being, now come back here and heal some more and preach some more. I know what that's like. And so anyway, um, Matthew. The parallel in Matthew is nowhere close in terms of its location. Nowhere close to where it is in Mark or in Luke. Chapter eight. It's in chapter eight. Hmm. We got to go past the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, is it coming down from the mountain. Mm -hmm. Yep, that is exactly right. When Jesus was coming down, when Jesus had come down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and there was a leper who came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, notice, I do choose be made clean. 
<laughs> Even for the Matthian community, it was so powerful they had to retain it exactly the same. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. He's <laughs> copying it straight from Mark. Yes, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And then there's nothing here that says anything about him going off and blabbing. He dumps that part. It's almost like he just inserted it as an afterthought since it is so far so so much later and he just took a he uses it as a transition between coming down from the mount and entering Capernaum and the centurion coming up and saying that my servant is ill it's sort of like a buffer story that gets inserted there like Matthew didn't like its location <laughs> in Mark doesn't like the location in Mark, so he feels free to change the location. <laughs> I guess it doesn't really matter. I mean, in that it's a story in amongst itself. It if you don't, if you're not tied to Mark having to be 100% a chronological account, to Luke having to be 100% a chronological account, to Matthew having to be 100% chronological account, but instead thematic, theological, orders and structures being as important and sometimes more important than a chronology, you're free to take these stories and put them where literary and theological and thematic um, pressures have you put them. I think it's fascinating. It's the exact same story. It's been relocated. It's been relocated by Matthew. Yeah, it would have been silly for him to um, say, don't go out and spread the word, because he'd already been on the mountain spreading the word. I mean, <laughs> well, duh. Really, you make a good point, and he put it so far later yeah. that it may not be. Yeah. If you well, go to That's interesting that he put that light. What was the use of the word Lord? Hmm? What, what, what was the yeah. use of the word Lord in those times? Lord, Master, Teacher. It appears in two of them. Right. 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 It's in Matthew and it's in Luke. It's not in Mark. Um, it means teacher or master, more likely master. Because um, the word, was the word there a is, sense of his divineness? At the word point? is kurios and, in Greek, and it probably, probably was simply Adonai in Aramaic, probably Adonai. And was a general term used for someone who was your superior. Is that the same word Paul uses? Kurios, uh, yes. Hmm? Really? Oh, yes. Exact same word. Mm -hmm. And contain, contain theological meaning, as may well be the case here for Matthew and Luke, and when Mark uses it, just not here. Um, but it. It, we would maybe be pushing it a little too far to say that every time we hear it used, it, it must mean some theological divine Lord, because it would not have been unexpected to call someone who was your superior your master. 
the Lord. Uh huh. Oh yeah. In the you know we we have a problem with it because we we are Americans. We do not have uh, a, a acquaintance with royalty or with that kind of a caste structure. If we were Brits, we would have a, a better understanding of it, maybe a little bit. The idea that the Lord is a title that is used for someone who is considered your social better. <laughs> to use an older term. It's interesting that Mark got, um, goes ahead and uses the move with pity, but he doesn't bother to use Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of he uses pity, but he doesn't use Lord. That's more human, isn't it? It's clo- in my reading, it's closer to the event. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and, and literally, it is, it is one step closer than either Luke or Matthew, because Matthew and Luke are using Mark. <laughs> Duh, so it is one step closer. So why would they leave it out? They want to put Lord. In. I mean, why do they? Why did they leave out Pity? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, pity is an emotion, and maybe they didn't feel comfortable as- ascribing that particular emotion at this point for this leper. I don't know. That's a good question. I'm more. My, I tend to deal more with the issue of why did they add in Lord. Yeah. But why did they take leave out pity? It is a personal human emotion. Now, and elsewhere they don't. And add, both of them did that. And, both and then they both added Lord. <laughs> but if they weren't communicating, that would. I mean, it reflects. It must have been. It reflects some. It reflects a slightly later, slightly more removed stage of referencing Jesus. And if you if you think. If Mark is coming straight from Peter's teachings, Peter knew Jesus directly, knew the man was a man of emotion and humanness, it would be more, he would be more ready to come out and, and use that kind of terminology. Whereas, whereas uh, further removed from the events, not writing as having heard it from an, an immediate eyewitness, but using this as a source, Maybe they're just feeling a little further removed from Jesus, and therefore they use the term Master, Lord, Kurios, and are uncomfortable ascribing to him at this particular point, although elsewhere they ascribe plenty of emotion to the man, um, to Jesus. But maybe they just felt uncomfortable doing it at that point. Wouldn't it point to, though, since they, Mark was unique in having pity and not having Lord, and the fact that these other two added Lord in the exact same spot, left pity out in the exact same spot. Yeah, there was, was some common source that they were getting Could that be. information from to be so exact. One of the arguments that some people view as a weak, a weak point in Mark and priority here is that Matthew and Luke both do the exact same thing here. Well, could it have been in the saying source, which we know that they had? If you start, if, if you keep, if you do that repeatedly with lots of uh, all of these types of things, you end up with a saying source that is essentially identical to amalgam of both Matthew and Luke. Yeah, definitely. And that is more problematic than to say that the same thing that causes Luke to add Lord and leave out pity is the same thing that's causing Matthew to add Lord and leave out pity. And that is a further removal from the actual person who is the source for this, i.e. Peter who saw it happen. 
and um, therefore uh, a feeling of further removal from, from, from the humanness of Jesus and a desire to elevate him. Plus, it's also temporarily removed by another decade or two, and that will tend to also push Jesus more into the unreal and need to have appellations of Lord attached to him. Not that those appellations don't occur in Mark, they do, and not that humanness isn't found in Matthew and Luke, it is. It's just that, that that's the tendency. Uh, I don't think that this is in the same source at, at all. I think this is entirely a Mark and a Matthew and Luke uh, interpretation and application of the Mark source, and it's fascinating they did it the same way. Did you say, and I forgot, did Luke have any way of, of seeing Matthew's writing since Matthew's was, Matthew was written earlier? We don't know if Matthew was written earlier. It, the traditional sequence is Mark, Matthew, Luke, with Matthew and Luke being independent of each other but having Mark as a source. But why Matthew would be written earlier than Luke is just the tradition of doing that. It, Luke could have been written earlier than Matthew. It could have been that Matthew had Luke as, as looked at Luke and said, aha, okay, let's do that. But I tend to agree with most scholars who say that, that Matthew and Luke did not have access to each other in one way or the other, either one direction or the other, but that they both had a, a substantially the same edition of Mark and a very similar edition of the same source. And that it was their particular setting, needs, uh, attitudes, uh, theological interpretations, cultural proclivities that resulted, and, and intellectual proclivities, in Luke's case especially, that resulted in the differences in their incorporation of the same source material and in their utilization of Mark and in their interpretation and tendencies to correct. You, you look at that. In Matthew you see no attempt to clean up the grammar. None. Whereas in Luke you see the attempt to clean up the grammar which reflects Luke's character. He's an intellectual who's trying to fix bad Greek and was probably offended by it in the sense that any good English teacher is offended by people who end sentences with prepositions. I once, I once ended a, I was posting a message on a debate board and I fixed, I was writing it and I went back and I fixed it so I didn't end a sentence with a preposition and somebody castigated me for doing that and said I thought I was holier than thou because the way I wrote you something. You change. <laughs> change Mark. Just makes me nervous to end a sentence with whiff. <laughs> Although it's, cool, although it's colloquially good, yeah. it's not right, it's not good in written format. Likewise, the pronoun utilization at the beginning of Mark here is colloquially verbal, but it's not good written. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. 
For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.